Today, we talk with Menije Moradian about her new book, This Flame Within, Iranian Revolutionaries in the United States, which documents the formation of Iranian student activists in the U.S. in the late 1970s and their impact on the Iranian revolution. This Flame Within is not only a book about history, but also a book about memory and the importance of retrieving these memories of anti-imperialist pasts against the backdrop of thoroughly imperial present for the possibilities of building anti-imperial futures. Among many of the things we discuss is the cross-pollination between these groups and groups based in the United States working toward third world liberation, supporting Palestinian rights and protesting the Vietnam War. We also connect all these topics to today's situation in Iran and the Iranian diaspora. Speaking Out of Place is produced in collaboration with the creative process and is made with kind support from Stanford University. I alone am responsible for its content. Thank you so much for being on the show. There's so much to talk about because it's such a wide-ranging, comprehensive, subtle, and complex book that covers all those fields. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm a huge fan of the podcast. I think that it's important for our audience to know exactly how many students are we talking about, because the number is really impressive. The second one that really struck me was the geographical diversity. Mostly it's Northern California you're talking about, but also these amazing stories of these little towns in Oklahoma or Texas. And I remind our audience, most would not imagine this, but back in those days, we had a telephone, a mimeograph machine, if we were lucky, and face-to-face. There was no internet. And to maintain and grow a network of diasporic activism was no easy task. Iranian foreign students start coming to the U.S. in the years after the CIA coup. It's a typical pattern, right? The U.S. would overthrow a democratic government, install a dictator, and then start recruiting foreign students to train them in the ideological and technocratic skills that you would need to make the country favorable for U.S. interests. So you start having Iranian students coming in the late 1950s. The numbers increase throughout the 60s and 70s. Tens of thousands of Iranian students more than from any other country, come to the United States to study. At the moment, at 1979, the moment of the revolution, there are 50,000 or more students in the United States. So it's by far the largest foreign student population here. The geographic spread, it's really interesting. Again, this also changes over time because more and more students start coming. And also because in the 1970s, it became possible for less affluent students to come. For the first time, there were more like government scholarships available to certain groups of workers in the oil industry, for example, to their children, for example. They were not like blue collar, but more like white collar office workers, that type of thing. But before that, it had been mostly wealthy families who could afford to send their children abroad and who had access to education in the first place. But when you have less affluent students coming, they're going to less expensive places. They're going to smaller colleges. And what was really interesting is a lot of folks go to certain community colleges and places where there's no entrance exam and no language test so they can get student visas. <laughs> because also remember by the 1970s, Iran has become so repressive that young people are trying to leave. They want to leave. And some of them want to leave intentionally to become activists. They leave on purpose to come and join the Iranian student opposition movement. 
So then wherever they land, which may not be at UC Berkeley, right, because it's hard to get in there. <laughs> it may be at small community colleges, places like Beville, Texas, or state schools around the Midwest or in Florida. They form chapters, right? It just took a handful of Iranian students and you'd have an ISA chapter. And then they would connect and network and converge with conferences and regional events. Like, for example, there was a Texas, Oklahoma region that brought together several local chapters. So they were incredibly well organized. One of the fundamental key words is affect. And it seems like a pretty abstract and atmospheric word, right? And yet you ground it in a number of very important ways. So how did you balance the desire to allow a pretty wide latitude to the concept and yet still anchor it? Well, I decided to turn to affect theory, and I say in the introduction, this is not a word that you often hear outside of specialized academic fields, and I did want the book to be accessible beyond the academy, so I, I spent some time explaining it and defining it and talking about how I'm using it. But the reason I'm using it is because when I was asking the former members of the Iranian Students Association about their memories, their experiences of student activism, of the Iranian revolution, when I was asking them why they participated in so many other liberation movements that were not directly about Iran, and hopefully we'll get into all of this in the course of the conversation, they kept talking about their feelings. They kept talking about a shared sense of injustice, the desire to take a militant stance. Uh, one person I interviewed, Hamid Kosari, the first demonstration he went to upon arriving in the United States in San Francisco had nothing to do with opposition to U.S. support for the Shah. It was actually a picket of Black workers outside of a hotel in downtown San Francisco protesting discrimination in hiring policies. That immediately resonated with him because he had witnessed himself all kinds of discrimination in Iran. He'd been part of a supporting a bus workers strike. These were not foreign concepts, he immediately felt drawn. He said, you know, they're being discriminated against. I have to go stand with them, even though he didn't really know that much about the history of anti-Black racism or the specifics of the African-American experience in the United States. That came later for him. What came first was the recognition that there was an injustice and the desire to stand against it. So I ended up really working with the notion of affect, the way that our bodies are constantly registering our experiences of coming into contact with the world. And when we experience something that puts us in a state of unease or discomfort or anger or hurt, we may not yet understand the causes. We may not have yet an analysis of why we feel this way or why this thing is happening to us. But we are carrying that affective experience in our bodies and it shapes us, it orients us, it changes us. And the way I talk about it, it's like a reservoir. It's like a latent set of energies and potentialities that can be mobilized later. And if we think about politics, certainly at this moment in this country, it's really hard to understand why people gravitate towards certain ideas or parties or explanations for things it's certainly not always about empirical evidence, but it's always about affect. There is something that is compelling people. There is some place where those inchoate energies, the body's accounting of experiences is attaching to some kind of explanatory framework that people are finding compelling. And so instead of taking at face value 
the idea that, oh, back in the 60s and 70s, people were just revolutionaries. You know, everyone was just a radical. Those were the days, you know. Instead of that more superficial approach, I wanted to really understand, well, how did that happen exactly, really? How does it happen? that so many different people from so many different places across a whole generation can become drawn to not just the same ideologies and ideas, but the idea that it's worth potentially dying for a revolution, that you're going to organize your entire life around this possibility of total transformation. What is it that compels people to make those sacrifices and choices and decisions? And I don't think we can explain that simply by saying, you know, well, they read Mao's Little Red Book and or they read Marx. You know, lots of people read these things. It doesn't mean that you change your whole life, right? It has to do with something I think that's already there, some latent energy, some affective capacity and desire for change, right? To be able to make sense of the injustice you've witnessed and experienced and do something about it, right? And then when you encounter these explanatory frameworks, ideas, organizations, you either accept them or you don't, but you're looking for some way of explaining. I mean, as human beings, we're looking for ways of explaining why we feel the way we do. We're always trying to understand what's going on, right? Within ourselves and around us. And it's those affective capacities, right? That were mobilized towards a politics of third world liberation. And because that was, you know, those ideas were circulating and they were available, that's where certain people gravitated. So there's nothing inevitable about our affects leading to certain political outcomes. What I was trying to show was actually the indeterminacy, the potential, mm -hmm. the capacity and the power that our affective experiences have to orient us and to make us open to different kinds of political ideas. There are clearly very deep resonances between the history that you talk about in your book and the current situation within which the book is being published. In a couple of weeks, we're going to mark the one-year anniversary of the state killing of Masa Gina Amini, whose killing by the Iranian state set off this new movement of uprising in Iran. And in your book, actually, you speak about how the exclusion of feminism and women's liberation was part of the unfinished areas of oppression that had been addressed in the 1979 revolution and that, in fact, the oppression of women was permitted to, to continue. And now we have this revolution that's explicitly oriented around women's liberation with the slogan, Woman, Life, Freedom. The historian Alfred McCoy once said something, and I apologize to Professor McCoy, I'm going to butcher what he's saying and paraphrasing it. I read it a long time ago, but that his apparent ability to be predictive of things in the future was not so much a prophetic ability as arising from a deep understanding of the past that has made the present and the fault lines and lines of power that organize it. So often when it comes to Iran, people attempt to explain the violence of the state as a quote unquote Islamic throwback a return to 1400 years, as opposed to, as you explain and as other critical scholars of law, gender and politics in Iran explain, rather than being a historical throwback, it's in fact a profoundly modern state that has been created with Islamic lexicon, symbology, certain norms grafted onto it. So that, for example, this huge carceral and bureaucratic apparatus that we have is in fact a very modern thing. And yet modernity only gets credit for women's liberation or education, not credit for the modern prison cell, the surveillance camera. And so can you speak a bit about whether and how the type of resistant nostalgia you cover in the book, the attempt to retrieve from the wreckage of the past, 
possibilities from an alternative future, whether those disclose horizons of liberation beyond the modern nation state, beyond a desire to simply capture the apparatus of state repression, but rather dismantle, abolish it. Thank you for that. And I have to read Professor McCoy's work because I have been having that feeling all year. And as I've been also speaking a lot about what's been happening in contemporary Iran, but also organizing transnational feminist solidarity with the Jina uprising that, you know, the book was obviously finished before September 2022, when Jina was murdered by the Islamic Republic. But my deep engagement with the past actually led me to argue in the book that essentially the next time around, the revolution has to be feminist. And feminist in the sense not of a kind of narrow liberal feminism or a siloed set of single issues, right? But feminist in the sense of the most kind of capacious, intersectional, kinds of feminist politics that we inherit from third world feminism, women of color feminism, and these kinds of traditions. So this was based on my many years of activism and support of feminist movements in Iran, my organizing work in the U.S., and my engagement with the historical record. So imagine my surprise when absolutely unprecedented impossible to predict. You have a mass uprising in Iran, and there have been many uprisings in Iran, but this is the first one that centered issues of gender and sexual oppression and liberation. Again, not as separate issues or single issues, but as a kind of magnetic core, right, drawing together all of the grievances of the society from workers, from students, from ethnic and religious minorities, obviously, Gina being a Kurdish woman. So it's a kind of intersectional feminist revolutionary politics that spread nationwide across class provinces and all sorts of other divides. And this is absolutely the kind of legacy of everything that's come before it from the efforts at reform and other kinds of feminist organizing that have happened over the past 40 years, but all the way back to the Revolution 79, when the dominant way of imagining liberation, I think, was quite hierarchical. They kind of ranked oppressions in a way that I think we've learned the hard way not to do. In other words, the idea was that first you had to get rid of imperialism and then only then could you address other internal divisions, oppressions, hierarchies, etc. But of course, you never get there because what happens when you have revolution is then you have to consolidate that revolution and you have to defend it and protect it from foreign threats. And so you end up with a national security discourse, essentially, right, in which any forms of opposition, dissent, disagreement are threats to the defense of the revolution. And of course, that burden is always borne unequally by people who are already marginalized, disempowered, and whether it's working class people, women, and ethnic minorities in particular in Iran. So that experience, the bitter lessons drawn from that are many. And I think one of them is that we can't confuse formal national sovereignty, which is very important. <laughs> I'm not saying it's not right, but extremely important. But we can't confuse that with freedom or liberation or justice and that all nation states regulate gender and sexuality and all nation states in a global capitalist context produce massive economic inequality, polarization, and then require huge repressive apparatus to maintain that unequal status quo. And in fact, as the scholar Golnar Nikpur points out and is writing a whole book about this, the prison system in Iran was, of course, developed under the U.S. back Shah and was very much part of the project of modernization and development in Iran. And it's that prison system that's inherited and repurposed then by the Islamic Republic to persecute dissidents. And that's still, unfortunately, to this day, 
bursting at the seams with young people, with poor people, with activists, journalists, and also just really, honestly, mostly poor people, just like in the United States. Well, I was like, yeah. Afsana Najma Badia pointed out, this gender binarization yes. was also a fundamental part of the construction of modernity from a pre-modern Iran within which women had mustaches and some men didn't have beards. Can you talk a bit about how the beard yes, and- of gender that's being mobilized is itself a product of colonial dispersion of norms? Absolutely. And this is so important because this is part of what kind of sets women up to be really stuck in a terrible set of constraints. Under the U.S. back Shah, there was a kind of state discourse of women's rights, of feminism. Imagine this dictatorship that is censoring and oppressing and imprisoning so many people, then sets up a women's organization of Iran and proclaims to the world that they were actually hosting women's rights conferences, you know, the queen. Just imagine the hypocrisy when you're presiding over so much inequality and repression, but then you try to participate in the kind of global civilizing discourses of women's rights and equality. So that discredited feminism for the left and for many others who were against the Shah and against foreign domination over Iran, understandably. The whole project of kind of feminism was understood to be a top-down, state-led, contradictory, vacuous process, right? Because of course, the majority of women in Iran as working-class women, their rights were not advanced under the Shah. There was massive poverty, illiteracy, a lack of access to healthcare, and many things. However, because of this effort to participate in the modern civilized world of nation states, the Shah also did feel some pressure to do things like reform the family law, women were given the right to vote. And of course, this is full of contradictions because what does it mean to vote in a dictatorship, right? So there are problems. There are problems with all of this, but there's also some space for women to gain more access to some kinds of rights. The age of marriage was raised. It's more complicated than all bad or all good, right? It's riddled with these contradictions. But what happens is because of the Shah's repression and his complicity with foreign domination, there's a kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater you know, move that happens where it's like everything to do with women's rights, family law reform, all of these things is westernization, imperialism, and gets counterposed to a kind of revolutionary anti-imperialist Shiism, which becomes the dominant kind of discourse of authenticity and reclaiming the nation from foreign domination. So it's in this polarization that women really lose out. And of course, there were so many Iranian women who were against the Shah, who participated in the overthrow of the Shah, but also wanted equal rights. The book really, it follows the arc of these Iranian students. They come to the U.S. to get this Western education. They're supposed to go home and help to Westernize and modernize Iran and kind of U.S. capitalist development model. But I look at how and why some of them break away from that, become revolutionaries, organize abroad, and then return home to join the revolution in progress. And the key chapter about the revolution is really centered on the March 1979 women's uprising that happens just after the Shah has left, just after Khomeini has returned. And there's this moment of like, okay, we won, (laughs) but now what? And so often in, in case after case, country after country, it's that moment that's actually the hardest one. It's right after you win that you then have to figure out how are we going to live? What kind of society are we going to have? 
And that's where a lot of contestation and struggle and unfortunately a lot of state violence unfolds because you do have on International Women's Day, March 8th, 1979, tens of thousands of women flood into the streets of Tehran to protest an announcement from the interim government that hijab is going to be mandatory in all government offices. And this has followed on the heels of the firing of all women judges. There's been like a series of moves, right? And so many women correctly recognize that these are not only attacks on women, these are attacks on democracy, on freedom, on justice, on the values and principles of the kind of new society that they thought they were fighting for, right? So that brings outpouring of women into the streets, including many leftist women and including some of the returning students whose journeys I'm tracking and tracing throughout the book. And so they have this incredible experience of trying to apply the principles of solidarity, of mass organizing, of revolutionary politics to the issue of women, not to counterpose that to the fight against imperialism, but actually to argue that women's liberation has to be at the center of a free society, of a liberated society based on self-determination, right? That should include women too. And that's where you get these frictions and debates where so many of the organizations, left-leaning, liberal, as well as Islamist, that kind of had a, a revolutionary coalition of sorts against the U.S., now turn on the women. And so the formal organizations, including of the left, really don't support this uprising, even though many leftist women are participating as anti-imperialist women in these marches. But the argument that really comes to dominate is that this is going to sow divisions, disunity. It's going to weaken the revolution at a moment of precarity and danger when we need a united front against imperialism. And so many women on those demonstrations, they themselves don't want to weaken the revolution and help the imperialists, right? So they're very susceptible to that because they start thinking, oh, is this the wrong time? Are we doing the wrong thing? I don't know. So there's a lot of doubt, division, consternation that happens. And then you also have a lot of violence, vigilante violence, Islamist violence that physically drives women off the streets, not all at once, but over time. And so it's a longer story. I tell some of it in the book, but many, many women's organizations, demonstrations that followed from those March events, eventually they really can't safely mobilize anymore. It's just too physically dangerous. And eventually hijab does become mandatory, although the process takes a couple of years. It reminds me of that play by Ariel Dorfman, Death and the Maiden, the postscript to the Chilean revolution. is a very stark three-person drama, and there's two men and one woman. The woman has been tortured and imprisoned. And of course, her husband is now working for the new human rights court. And they're saying, if you survive, you have to take a back seat because only families of those executed count. And she says, why is it we who are always told that our rights come last? The right. state has to consolidate at this moment. So it's a very interesting parallel. I'm glad you have these great illustrations and newspaper clippings in the book. I remember when that photograph of the Shah and Jimmy Carter on the White House lawn wiping tears from their eyes because they were being tear gassed. And the whole concessions for women's rights was subordinated to the human rights discourse because, after all, Carter was running as the human rights president. And that brings out exactly what you're saying, all these contradictions, because the Shah is giving way to Carter in these meaningful and yet, at the end of the day, meaningless concessions, but meant to diffuse opposition. Could you talk a little bit about what Joey Slaughter calls Human Rights Inc., the way in which the human rights assemblage worked toward, but also against, ultimately, the revolution. 
Yeah, it's interesting because Carter really has that reputation, especially given what came after, of being one of the last sort of maybe good presidents, you know, and there, there are many things we could probably critique about Carter, but certainly it must be said that he stood by the shot till the bitter end and that support for human rights Perhaps he naively thought he would influence the Shah over time, but that's a hard one to swallow for me because it was quite clear that the Shah had been torturing dissidents for years. And at the end of the day, Iran was such an important strategic U.S. ally in a part of the world we call the Middle East, you know, and not just the oil, but also as a bulwark against Arab nationalism, meaning Arab anti-colonial and socialist movements and support for Israel. So, I mean, Saudi Arabia, Israel, Iran, these are like the linchpins of U.S. domination over an entire region, right? And so Carter was going to stick by his man in Tehran pretty much no matter what. And famously, the elite intelligence establishment in Washington really didn't see the revolution coming. They really didn't think the Shah could fall so easily, given how much they'd invested in him. And this is part of why the Iranian revolution was widely supported by activists all over the world who were fighting against U.S. imperialism because it really was this dramatic victory where you had millions of people go into the streets and get rid of this entrenched dictatorship backed by the most powerful imperialist empire. It was so dramatic. It was like ordinary people seized history and turned it in another direction. Mm -hmm. And it showed that's possible, right? So part of what I'm doing in the book is trying to recuperate those affects. It's like if we haven't lived through revolutionary moments, if we haven't seen it, it can be very easy to believe the Washington consensus that there's no alternative possible to capitalism, right? Especially after the end of the Cold War and the sort of declaration of victory for the West. So I think it's really important to recuperate these moments of revolutionary possibility, indeterminacy, and just that feeling that ordinary people can change the world, right? Because if, you, if we don't have that, if we have no way of accessing that, it's very hard to imagine anything else. At the same time, in the book, I'm trying to critique the forms, right? The ways that those revolutionary ethics found their concrete expression, which was in a set of what we were talking about before, sets of ideologies, politics, idioms that were problematic in many ways. And so in the book, I focus most of my critique on the left because that's what I'm studying. But obviously the kind of Shiite supremacy that came to power, it's like what we say about Zionism, right? You can't have equality, justice, anything if one religion has more rights than everybody else, right? Just at a basic level of just principle. So there are huge problems with what happens in terms of the government that comes to power and in terms of, I think, some of the leftist ideas about how to have a revolution, what revolution should mean and look like. But I think all of that painful, traumatic history has fed into the generations that have come after. And I think that now what we are seeing in Iran is very much a kind of like a redemptive moment, whether there's victory or not, we don't know. But what's happened is that the exact groups that were marginalized in 1979, women, Kurds, Baluch, have been at the center. They're at the center leading this. And there's a broad recognition that it's not really possible to have rights for some and not everyone. And that, in fact, we do have intersecting structures of oppression that are being presided over by the same government, right? And that the government has to go. So that kind of revolutionary impulse is really led by the groups who lost out, I think, the most in 1979. I'd like you to talk about the effect of the victory of the Vietnamese people. It just follows exactly what you were saying in terms yeah. of the possibilities. 
but also Palestine, because you know, we were talking about Carter. He was the only American president to apply the word apartheid to Israel. So could you yeah. talk a little bit about how those two topics, Palestine and Vietnam, factored into the Iranian student movement? Sure. So in one chapter of the book, I really focus on the joint organizing and solidarity work that Iranian student activists engaged in with other liberation movements. And I focus on three areas. One is the Black liberation movement in the U.S. One is the movement against the war in Vietnam, Southeast Asia. And the third is Palestine and the sort of broader Arab anti-colonial movements, including in Dofar. And so, yes, the there, there are specific things to say about each of these kind of sustained areas of solidarity. But when it came to Vietnam, there really was a mass anti-war movement in the United States, right? And it had different wings. It had liberal wings. It had pacifist wings. It had anti-imperialist and Marxist wings. There were different segments to it and different approaches. And the Iranian Students Association, they were on like the left wing, more militant, more Marxist end of things. They were for the victory of the Vietnamese people. They saw this as a legitimate struggle for self-determination against imperialism, and they deeply identified with it. And one of the reasons is because there were Vietnamese students actually organizing on a lot of these campuses. And so that's something I try to highlight about the context of diaspora, because of course there were Iranian leftists in Iran, who you could argue were more connected to what was going on there, right? But what was unique about diaspora is that you actually could meet face-to-face -face, in person with people who had experienced U.S. dictatorships and interventions in many different parts of the world, and you could compare notes and you could talk about, oh, well, there was a coup in 53 in Iran. And then you're talking to Chilean students about the coup in 1973, or you're talking to students from Congo, or you're talking to students from the Philippines. And so when it came to Vietnam, the ISA, they participated in joint organizing with Vietnamese students on campuses and in the broader anti-war movement, specifically with Students for Democratic Society, which became at one point like the main vehicle, the main coalition for student anti-war politics, but they were always on the left. They didn't support the moratorium. They thought that wasn't radical enough. And as I write about in one section, they wanted to speak at these demonstrations and they had a lot of respect and credibility and relationships. So they often could. And in, in one moment, one ISA member recounted that they wanted to speak at an SDS anti-war protest in Washington, D.C. And they wanted to also mention Palestine. They wanted to make the connections between U.S. support for repressive regimes <laughs> and for colonization from East Asia all the way to West Asia, right? And they were told, no, you know, that's going to alienate people, right? So I thought that was important too, to draw. It wasn't always a happy, perfect story. There were a lot of differences and debates and disagreements within these movements. But when the Vietnamese won and the U.S. had to leave, it was celebrated globally as a victory for the side of all colonized people. But for the Iranians, I think it was really like a concrete example that like, if they can do it, maybe we can do it too. And also the U.S. was weakened militarily and politically, right? Because the American population had turned against the war in Vietnam, Iranians also saw that was possible. And they were similarly hoping that they could convince the American population to turn against U.S. support for the Shah. So they were very much learning from and following and participating in all of these developments and then thinking about how can we apply this? How can we imagine something similar unfolding in relation to Iran? You also spoke about the solidarity with Black liberation struggles. Some of the most poignant anecdotes in the book are those where the Iranian students in the U.S. 
speak about how they immediately recognized the police brutality and oppression of American police against Black people in the U.S., not out of any deep knowledge of the history of the U.S., but because they recognized that same fear and brutality that was meted against them by police in Iran. We spoke about tear gas earlier, and tear gas now has become one of those paradigmatic examples of the material connections that link these transnational exercises in police brutality from Palestine to Black uprisings in the U.S. Tear gas, in fact, outlawed as a weapon of war, but permitted as a weapon of police. And I think this really shows how these affective connections that people have against these systems of violence are grounded in the actual material links that exist between systems of violence. And so refuting this idea or this very Western separation of feelings from facts of affect from objective mm-hmm. conditions right. on the ground, which is something your book uh, does so beautifully. And so can you speak about how recognition of these forms and the way that policing are influence each other transnationally can ground an internationalist abolitionist solidarity that transcends many of the cultural essentialist approaches that stigmatize Iranian state violence as somehow exceptional and an orientalist production. Right. Well, so, of course, in the period of the 60s and 70s, which I'm writing about in the book, the Iranian police force, actually several sections of their repressive apparatus are literally trained by the United States. So there's a really direct material link. And in particular, Savak, the secret police, right? is established and set up by General Schwarzkopf in Iran. And then they're also trained by Mossad agents. So this is a very transnational operation they're running there. But essentially, the Savak becomes notorious for persecuting dissidents within Iran. But they also, with the permission and knowledge of the United States government, have agents operating in the United States to police and surveil foreign students. This is actually true of many third world countries with allied U.S. dictatorships. They had secret agents, their secret police forces had agents in the United States to track South Korean students, to track different, right? It's not just Iran. This is like a much more widespread phenomenon. Part of why the Iranians are being directly persecuted by a force that's literally comes into being because of U.S. training and backing and support. But in terms of the connection with the Black movement, there's a couple of really important things about this. So one of the main areas of organizing work that Iranian students engaged in abroad was campaigning to free political prisoners back in Iran, right? They thought that if they could expose the injustice, the sham trials, the torture, that surely this would offend the democratic sensibilities of American people. And they could, again, erode support for U.S. policy in Iran, win more people to their cause. So when the Black liberation movement, there are so many political prisoners. This becomes one of the main areas of campaigning and organizing and activism for Black revolutionaries and activists, because so many of their leaders and cadre are in jail. And so this becomes a kind of very concrete, very obvious point of solidarity and connection that, of course, the Iranian activists are going to show up to the free Huey Newton demonstrations and put up posters to free Bobby Seale, Angela Davis. Of course, they're going to be there and put their bodies on the line because that's exactly what they're trying to stop in Iran. It's the same kind of idea that people are being persecuted for their beliefs. And they also thought that if they could help undermine the U.S. repressive apparatus here, it would also help to weaken repression in Iran. They were imagining that they were part of a common struggle 
with racialized minorities in the U.S. against a common enemy, which is U.S. government, right? So anywhere where that enemy is weakened would be good for everybody. But that's a more intellectualization of it. In practice, when you see people being beaten up by police and you yourself have been beaten up by police or watch your friends be beaten up by police in Iran, it's not really hard to feel a connection. And the connection is outrage, it's indignation. It's we're not going to let this stand. And so you do see Iranian students throwing themselves into the fray so much so that they get persecuted by U.S. police, the FBI, and infamously the San Francisco Tactical Squad, which is literally formed and deployed against Black people, is also deployed against Iranian activists. You have a situation in which the same militarized police units are going after both groups, right? So the reality is that as soon as Iranian students start protesting U.S. policies, the more militant they become, the more they feel they have in common with other militants who are also resisting state repression. So that becomes the link is state is what kind of response do we want to have to state repression? How are we going to take it? Are we going to turn the other cheek? You know, the ISA, they were not big fans of the nonviolent wings of the civil rights movement. They were with the militants, right? They were with the Marxists, the revolutionaries. That's where they felt the connection. Because even when the Iranian students were embracing nonviolent tactics, for example, their occupation of the Statue of Liberty, they were still labeled presumptively, quote unquote, terrorists by U.S. authorities. And it seems that even among the left now, there is still a residual grant of legitimacy that is given to state violence that separates presumptively legitimate state violence from the violence or nonviolence of non-state actors. So, for example, even when leftist activists are labeled as terrorists, sometimes the left response is to say, oh, well, we're not terrorists, unlike those other actual terrorists over there in a way which fails to deconstruct the category of the quote unquote terrorist and how it's really uh, from its inceptions in suppressing anti-colonial resistance from its inception, the category of the terrorist has really served as a foil to legitimize state violence in the first place. So often, too, we see some anti-prison and police activism continue to be organized around the categories of the truly guilty versus the truly innocent targets of police and prison brutality, contra to which say, say that all prisoners are political prisoners because mass incarceration is an inherently political formation of state violence. And so again, how do these resistant nostalgias, recovery of instances like this labeling of the Iranian anti-imperial activists as terrorists how do recovering those help us to question this dichotomy that continues to reproduce itself between legitimized state violence versus presumptively or labeled illegitimate resistance to state violence? Yeah, so I want to answer your question by taking a step back and just explaining a little bit more. The Iranian Students Association was initially a kind of just broad, almost like student union that was actually even set up by a CIA front group, and it was supposed to actually control students. But in the very early 60s, dissident students, supporters of the deposed Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh, who was overthrown in the 1953 CIA coup, supporters of Mossadegh, they seized the reins and turned the ISA into this opposition vehicle that becomes more and more sort of Marxist over time. And many of the students involved in the ISA are also members of different kinds of Maoist and Marxist-Leninist kind of underground parties. And so politically, there's a kind of support for the right to self-defense, the right to tactically deploy violence against a repressive state. 
in the context of anti-colonial, anti-racist, revolutionary struggle. In practice, because they're student activists in the U.S., their everyday practices did not involve arming themselves. They did not have like the same tactics as, say, the Black Panther Party, but they supported their right to do that. And that's why they would show up to defend them, because they understood that uh, the crackdown and the labeling of Panthers as terrorists was absolute hypocrisy and that the vast majority of the monopoly on violence was the state. Right. And so they had that kind of principal position. Right. Even though most of what they did were pickets and sit-ins and hunger strikes and sometimes building occupations, banner drops. But as time wore on and by 1977, when it was incredibly frustrating that they had been exposing so much barbarism happening in Iran by the U.S. backshaw, so many young people executed. I mean, just really horrific. And the U.S. just keeps supporting. And now you have Carter talking human rights, who's bringing the Shah to the White House for the annual royal visit. And it's just too much. And so you have this mass mobilization of Iranian foreign students, the largest one ever in Washington, D.C., Outside the White House, what David referred to when the police spray tear gas to control the protesters and it wafts into the Rose Garden and the Shah and the Carter have to wipe their chemical tears and it exposes that power is not invulnerable, that the protests are getting to them. But the militancy on that protest, which happens at the occupation of the Statue of Liberty is February 77, when they get labeled terrorists by the Coast Guard. This demonstration is at the end of 77, November. And by that time in November, they're quite militant. So Iranian foreign students have come with a plan to defend themselves from the police, Savak agents, and the kind of pro-Shah crowd that's been essentially bought and paid for by the Iranian embassy and flown there to be a violent counter-protest. So you do have these kind of pitched battles that happen. Many people are injured. There's a lot of police violence. The police are on horseback running people over. Many Iranian student activists end up in the hospital. But the blame is put squarely on the left. All the New York Times coverage, Washington Post coverage, they never talk about the fact that there was this bought and paid for anti-Shah crowd that were provocateurs, actually, and that there were Savak agents acting as provocateurs undercover. All of the blame is put on the student activists, the leftists, their sort of hammer and sickle signs or evidence of their de facto guilt and their desire to cause mayhem and disrupt civilized society. And so you get this kind of this discourse of terrorism is always a racializing one, right, that is supposed to set them outside the bounds of sort of civil protest or legal, legally protected rights to protest, right? They've gone too far. We no longer have to respect their rights. And now we can persecute them. And that's, that ends up exactly being what happens. The INS starts doing what we might call special registrations, which is something that happens after 9-11, but it happened to Iranians then, where all Iranians in the U.S. have to register with the INS. They have to prove they haven't fallen out of status, et cetera, et cetera. And it's this massive campaign to try to deport as many radicals, as many students as possible, who are now considered a kind of invading and hostile force, even before the Shah is overthrown. And of course, once the Shah is overthrown and then the hostage taking happens, it just ramps up even further. But what I show in the book, though, is that the use of the term terrorism is it's a political and a racializing move that is trying to take the legitimate demands and concerns and grievances of a group of people and put it outside the bounds of morality to place it somewhere where we don't have to engage within it, with it, that it's delegitimized, right? And can just be shut down with the full force of the law and the suspension of any 
you know, pretense of liberal kind of rights attached to it. So I think that history does help us make the case that that the term terrorism in an abstract world, we could say, oh, it applies to a description of tactics. But in the actual world, <laughs> it's always deployed by people with power to delegitimize the concerns of those who are less powerful. I have two possible questions that I could ask you. So first, you mentioned earlier the International Women's Day March that was organized in Iran just weeks after the 79 revolution. And one of the most revealing, telling anecdotes in your book is the French film that was made of this <laughs> women's march and how the French translation literally spoke over the what the women were actually saying to orient their concerns all around the imposition of Chachador and the hijab while ignoring their other material concerns regarding education and economic access. There's so much in the book which continues to be resonant today. And one of them is this perpetual triple bind that I think so many of us as Muslim, Iranian, orientalized women continue to find ourselves in of being caught between the patriarchy of our colonized communities, the imperialism of white saviors who purport to be rescuing Muslim women while implementing measures that actually further hurt and damage and disadvantage Muslim women like the U.S. sanctions, which we know have been devastating to all Iranians, but particularly to women, to queer people, to trans. And then white imperial feminists who quite literally speak over us in order to advance their own, quote unquote, universalist agenda. And so in this context of persistent forces that continue to structure and pervade our activism, how do we formulate our critiques to make them as resistant to co-optation as possible? So that's one question. And then the second question, and then you can pick, is there's simultaneously a U.S. centricism that continues to permeate so much leftist discourse. One very obvious manifestation of this is the very unipolar critique of imperialism that I think characterizes a lot of leftist analysis and organizing and can sometimes, frankly, be quite violent towards those who are putting forward a more nuanced and holistic analysis of forces of oppression at play, whether with respect to Iran or Syria or China or Russia. Another perhaps less obvious manifestation is how, like all empires, the U.S. structures itself as the center around which all of those on the periphery relationships are mediated through. I still remember an op-ed in Al Jazeera by Hamid Dabashi, for example, where he critiqued this episode wherein the Iranian and Saudi foreign ministers were sparring with each other in the pages of the New York Times. And so the U.S. constructs itself as the central point through which the relationships of those under its boot continue to be mediated. And so how do we oppose and resist U.S. empire without further reifying the centricism of the U.S. itself? This is one of my passions in life is trying to think through and answer this question. So thank you for stating it so clearly, because it's like the elephant in the room all the time around Iran, especially if you're trying to do anything in the U.S. about Iran. So for me in the book, I ended up really seeing resonances between the ways that Iranian women 
have had to negotiate everything that you said, the internal domestic forms of oppression within their own culture and society, as well as foreign imperial domination at the same time, right? And the ways that those intersect and overlap, like in the bodies and lives of actual people, right? I ended up seeing great resonance between that set of problematics and the ways that Black feminists and feminists of color in the U.S. have talked about what it's been like to try to navigate structural racism, sexism, class inequality, right? All these intersecting and overlapping oppressions at the same time here. And I teach a class called Intersectional Feminisms, right? Where I try to trace that whole, a whole genealogy through 20th century U.S. history, but also feeding out into third world feminism and anti-colonial movement. So not a U.S. centric version of a kind of intersectional feminist genealogy, right? And I try to, and I teach about the 79 women's uprising as part of this genealogy, because I think it's exactly that. It's like, how can we resist multiple forms of oppression at the same time without having to pick and choose? And when you are forced to pick and choose, when you're forced to pick a side between these supposed polar opposites, both of which are actually patriarchal and violent and oppressive, although maybe the scales of their operation and power are different, right? That's that we're always going to lose women, LGBTQ folks, poor people. We're always going to lose in that kind of a choice. And so I really wanted to break down that polar opposition between the U.S. and Iran or the West and Islam. And that those binary logics are just disastrous for liberation movements in Iran. They're just disastrous for feminism in Iran. They've just really put us in a terrible set of traps. And one of the traps is you have, on the one hand, a kind of anti-imperialism that ignores oppression in Iran, that can't say anything about the oppression of the Islamic Republic because that will feed into the logics of U.S. imperialism. So then you can't have solidarity either then, right? Then you're actually not going to be in solidarity with the uprisings and resistance and political prisoners and everything happening in Iran because you can't talk about it. So that's one problem. And on the other side, we have what you were saying, the U.S. getting to mediate and make moral claims on the discourse of feminism, women's liberation, human rights. And so you have the constant kind of co-optation or threat of co-optation of dissident movements and especially feminist movements in Iran by the West to fuel its own agenda, to say, look, see how backward and oppressive this country is. That's why we need to sanction it or overthrow it or what have you. I think that we're in a moment now where I'm a little bit maybe hopeful that those two poles are under pressure and, and that the kind of the ethical crisis at the core of each of them is being exposed on the one hand, because we've seen in practice 20 years of U.S. wars and occupations that didn't liberate anybody, especially women in Afghanistan, Iraq, and did the opposite, but also because Iranian women are trying to liberate themselves. So they don't need saving. They're trying to liberate themselves. And the question for the anti-imperialist left is, do you stand with them? Are you on their side? Do you stand with them? Or is this silence that we have to maintain? And so I'm very impatient with the argument that all we can do is denounce U.S. imperialism because we live in the U.S. I don't think that speaks to the history of third world internationalism or transnational feminism that I recount in the book. I think that really means that we maintain a kind of U.S. centric hierarchy in terms of whose struggles get to count, who gets to be an agent of history and things like that. So I'm really invested in what I call in the book intersectional anti-imperialism. You can see I'm trying to draw from the insights and wisdom of these multi-sided struggles experiences in the United States among Black and other women of color feminists, and then the experiences of so many women who participated in anti-colonial revolutions only to see themselves marginalized in the post-colonial states. 
And so just because Iran is threatened by the U.S. doesn't mean that Iranians don't have a right to choose their government, right? They do. They have a right to choose their government. And so self-determination has to be about more than just keeping foreign domination out. Like, yes, that's key, but it should never be counterposed to bodily autonomy. Self-determination also has to be at the level of the body, at the level of your everyday life, your access to economic resources, to public space, to education, right? To actually live in relation to people in a way that's not oppressive. And that's what is happening in Iran now with the Jina uprising. It's that it's about a cultural transformation, a political transformation. We hope there'll be a truly political transformation in terms of the power structure, but people are not settling for a kind of more reformist approach, right? And so what they, the burden on Iranians right now in Iran is that, is that they have to almost make their struggle legible to a U.S.-centric social justice model. And that's actually kind of oppressive, right? Like people are dying, they're going to prison, they're being tortured. And like a lot of American leftists are like, we're not sure what to say because it might seem Islamophobic. We're talking about Muslim people rising up. They're, it's not Islamophobic. It's like the job of feminists everywhere is to intervene and change the oppressive aspects of their own cultures and societies. And why shouldn't Muslim women have that right as well, right? You have to have a really strange infantilizing hierarchy to, to deny them that right. I don't know if I've gone some way towards answering some of your questions, but this is obviously something near and dear to my heart. Well, these people whose stories you tell seem to have so much passion and it seems like such a cathartic moment for them. So the question is, what things do they really want to get out into the world, given the fact that now they have this opportunity after decades and after being underground or exiled or imprisoned, now they have this chance with this book coming out one of the things that my interlocutors were proudest of and they wanted people to know that they had really accomplished something in terms of building this incredible, incredibly well-organized activist network of young people who were truly dedicated to making change, who were really willing to organize their lives around fighting for freedom and justice. One final ask. We would love to know from you what good news sources we can look at that will give us a more accurate picture of what's happening in Iran and these topics that you've raised. You know, the tricky part is having this in English, right? Because so much of the best news sources are really what people are writing coming out of Iran, but that's all in Persian. One source that I go to a lot is Iran Wire, which is in Persian and English. It's really like daily news. So you can find out about the latest government crackdown or what protests are happening, what campaigns are happening to free political prisoners, things like that, but also just broader news about Iran and the region. The web magazine, Jedalia.com, which covers broadly the Middle East, has an Iran page that's existed for a couple of years. I am one of the editors of the page, and I'm really proud of many of the things that we've published over the course of the Jina uprising, including some webinars and some translations of writings coming out of Iran. So I encourage folks to go and check out some of the coverage that we have there over the past year. Oh, that's great. So thank you so much for spending time with us. We could have easily spent another hour talking with you and we would have still only barely scraped the surface of the many things that you cover in this book. Thank you so much, Dana. I really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much. Please take a moment to like this episode and subscribe to this podcast. This will help bring it to other people's attentions. You might also follow me on Twitter at Palumbo Liu and let us know about any subjects you would like us to cover or people or groups you'd like us to interview. 